Yeah, so let me just uh, introduce myself for uh, those of you who don't know me or if you're visiting today. Uh, as Dan said, my name's Sam, and uh, I became a Christian when I was 17. Um, I grew up going to, to church with my family, my, my parents and my two sisters, and uh, that was okay. I didn't mind that. It was uh, as I got into my later teens, I started to drift away a little bit and uh, developed the double life. I don't know if anyone can relate to that. I, I became a master of the double life, so Sunday morning I was... Uh, Sam the Christian, and then Monday to Friday and Saturday, I wasn't wasn't really that in any way. Um, but what happened was a couple of a couple of really influential people kind of came alongside me and uh, started to disciple me, and they brought me to a place where I was able to commit uh, my life to Jesus fully, and and that's what happened. And since then, uh, for about four or five years now, I've been uh, journeying with God. I've been a Christian, and uh, it's not been that long in comparison to a lot of people, but within that, there's still been uh, the ups and downs, and, and that's okay, as uh, hopefully we'll discover this morning in, in this morning's passage. Um, but currently, a little bit about me, I'm uh, a student, I'm studying theology, I'm doing a theology degree at Cliff College, which is just up the road, uh, it's a Bible college, so we explore the Bible and God and stuff. Uh, a lot of the time, I'm not entirely sure what, we're, what it is we're looking at, but it seems to kind of piece itself together. Um, it seems to be okay. And then at Redeemer King, uh, I'm on the men's ministry team, and I help head up the youth work as well on Wednesday nights. So if you're a youth, you could come along to that on Wednesday nights at the Beaches House. That would be cool. All right, let's crack on. We're in uh, to the fourth week, I think it is, of the series that we're doing at the moment, the seven words from the cross. It's all the things that Jesus says on the cross as he's being crucified by the Romans uh, just over 2,000 years ago. And this morning's word from the cross is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And actually, that's probably the most significant saying from the cross, not just as a moment in history, as a point in history, but also for us personally, as how we relate to God now. Actually, what we have this morning is probably the most significant moment in history. So what I'm trying to say is let's not take this lightly because actually what we have is a huge deal. And uh, what it is actually is a quote from Psalm 22. Jesus hangs on the cross and he purposefully quotes Psalm 22 that was written by King David uh, a long time before that. So he fulfills a prophecy and he quotes Psalm 22, King David's psalm. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And this morning, uh, this saying, it comes from Matthew and Mark, but seeing as we're doing a series on Matthew, I thought we would focus on the Mark passage. Uh, eventually, when we get back to Matthew in like a year's time, we might make it to, the, to this passage again. But this morning, why don't we focus on Mark? So if you have a Bible with you, great. Why don't you open that to Mark chapter 15? It is, or you could pop down and grab a Bible from the side. Don't feel embarrassed about that. That's fine. Uh, and before before I read this passage for you to you, I, I just thought I'd share. I began doing some reading about this passage and trying to learn a bit about uh, what's going on here. And the first thing I read uh, did make me slightly apprehensive and a little bit nervous because I read that the mystery of this passage was so great and in, imponderable uh, that the great theologian Martin Luther is said to have gone into seclusion for a long period of time to try and understand what this passage meant. And apparently, he came away as confused as he was when he went into the seclusion. 
So, so I was a bit like, oh, okay, well, we'll see. We'll see what we can come up with. But don't worry, I do think God wants to speak to us this morning. I do think uh, there's a lot we can learn. So, so let's do that. Let's crack on. We're in Matthew chapter 15. We're starting at verse 33. At noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. And at three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lemma sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing near heard this, they said, listen, he's calling Elijah. Someone ran, filled a sponge with wine vinegar, put it on a staff and offered it to Jesus to drink. Now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to take him down, he said. And with a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion, who was stood there in front of Jesus, saw how he died, he said, surely this man was the Son of God. And the first thing I want us to just take a note of is that this is the only time in the Bible, the only time in the Gospels where we have Jesus referred to God not as his father. Every other time Jesus speaks to God, he will refer to him as Father, and he'll pray or he'll make some kind of reference, and he'll say, Father, Father, such as the Lord's Prayer. But as here, this is the first time and the only time in the Gospels that we have Jesus refer to God, not as his Father. I don't want to get lost in that, but I do think it helps set the scene for this morning's talk. Verse 34 says that three in the afternoon Jesus cried out, in a loud voice, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So, what exactly has just happened there? How is it that Jesus, who is both man and God, appears to experience this separation from God, this uh, aspect of his character that he has taught us over his, his ministry? He's kind of spent his whole three years convincing people that he is God, now hangs on the cross and says something which implies that actually, no, he isn't God in that moment. He has clearly been separated from God. That's what this seems to imply. So I was thinking about this and we were lo- I was doing a little bit of reading around it. And do you remember back uh, a few weeks ago when Carl was preaching and he spoke about Jehovah Jireh, which means the Lord will provide. And that passage, Jehovah Jireh, that first time that the name gets used is in... Uh, the Old Testament with Abraham and Isaac, and Isaac is to be sacrificed, or Abraham is told to sacrifice Isaac, and yet just in the moment as Isaac's about to be sacrificed, a lamb is provided by God, hence Jehovah Jireh, the Lord will provide. And Abraham doesn't sacrifice Isaac, he in fact sacrifices the lamb. Well, in this moment, in this story, and remember Carl made the parallels between that passage with Abraham and Isaac and the passage of Jesus going to the cross. Well, in this, in the cross story, actually, there is no lamb. There is no substitution. In fact, actually, if there is any kind of substitution, the substitution is that Jesus is the substitution. Jesus is actually the substitution for us. So God doesn't provide a lamb in this moment. He just sees that actually he can't. And Jesus must die. And in doing so, actually God turns his back on Jesus because in that moment, Jesus takes on all the sin, all the wrong, all the corruption of the earth, all the just, just unpleasantness and horribleness of humanity 
onto himself. And so God turns his way, turns away, and judges Jesus in that moment. And so the separation that we see, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, has to happen in order that God can judge Jesus on the cross. There has to be the separation so that when Jesus bears the sins of humanity on the cross, God can judge him. Otherwise, it's just not possible. And so in this moment, Jesus has taken upon himself all the sin, all the corruption of the world, both kind of historically and moving forward. So like Old Testament sin and then also our sin today and further forward than that as well. And so God turns his back on him. And this passage, it highlights the agony, not just of the crucifixion, but also the separation between father and son, the separation between God. Jesus is God character and God in heaven. So the agony of that in itself is excruciating for Jesus. It's not just the fact that he's beaten and just in agony from pain. Like the spiritual aspect of this is massive. His pain, his agony of my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Is, is probably just as, if not probably more painful than the actual physical aspect of the crucifixion itself. And that's why you have in this moment this separation, which can be tricky to get our heads around. I'm kind of, kind of looking around to see if people are with me still or if I've just lost everybody. But um, if you're with me, then, then that's great because actually what you have is possibly the most significant moment in the whole New Testament. Jesus, this is the bit. So you know when, when people refer back to Jesus has taken our sins, Jesus has died for us, this is the significant moment of the cross story. This is it. How I've ended up preaching on this, I have no idea. But, but, but this is the moment. This is the significant moment that on the cross, Jesus and God are separated and God judges, uh, judges Jesus who in that moment has taken all of our sin upon himself. This has to happen. This is the biggest, most significant moment in the history of humanity. And I've said it gets referred back to a lot, and, it, and we refer back to it all the time. And in the Bible, it gets referred back to a lot. And I'm going to read to you a couple of passages because they explain it uh, a little bit better than, than I probably can. So let's take a look at what it says elsewhere in the Bible. Paul writes in Romans, he says, All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. This is a significant bit. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. And just to explain what that word atonement, that's the key word in that little passage, that basically means that Jesus' crucifixion made right all of human wrong. And elsewhere in 2 Corinthians, we see that God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sin against them, and he has committed to us the, me- the message of reconciliation. And so the key word there, reconciliation, what does that mean? That basically means to restore relationships. So Jesus' death on the cross, this judgment on Jesus's. Uh, say Jesus in our sin upon Jesus, that moment restores our relationship with God the Father. That's the moment that means we can call God our Father. 
because all the, the grim stuff in our lives, actually, that's gone because if we have our faith in Jesus, then our relationship with God the Father, it's not like, there's no blockage because the sin that would block it has been taken by Jesus. So I mentioned earlier as well that this, uh, this saying from the cross, it's, uh, it's a reference back to Psalm 22. It's Jesus is quoting King David. It's a famous psalm. And uh, I just want to focus in on that for a moment, if that's okay with you, because I think actually there's some huge significance in this. And uh, Jesus quotes Psalm 22, and I just want to read the beginning of it to you, and we can just take a look at it together. If you want to flick there, uh, that would be great. He says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Which is what Jesus says. And he goes on to say, why are you so far from saving me? So far from my cries of anguish. My God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer. By night, but I find no rest. And he goes on in this psalm and he says things like, why are you so far from saving me, Lord? Why are you so far from my groaning? Why do I cry out to you, but you do not answer? And the reality of this, this moment for King David is actually a, a horrible time for him. You know, this, this is a quote that Jesus kind of takes upon himself and says on the cross. But actually, in this moment for King David, he's also in anguish. He's also suffering. He's also kind of has this sense that God has forsaken him. This is a very real moment for King David, as it was for Jesus on the cross. And actually... He's got good reason to be saying this kind of thing because of the personal tragedies in his life. King Saul was trying to, king, was trying to kill King David. His enemies were all out to get him. His oldest son was trying to kill him. And his family hadn't actually turned out too well either. So the anguish that David expresses, I, I, it's justified to a certain extent. Uh, and it's real for him. Like, let's not forget that. Jesus quotes it, but this is still very real for King David as well. And actually, for us as Christians, I think, you know what? We go through periods of time like that. Like, I don't know exactly what you've been through. I never will. But I'm sure like, you'll have been through something, or maybe you're going through something at the moment, that makes you think, God, where are you in this? Like, why have you forsaken me? What, what? I don't get it. And sometimes I guess referred to as the desert place or the, the dry time, or something like that. We come up with these like, names to try and describe what, what actually is, what's going on there. Um, but it's real. It's real. And, and what I want to do, I want to talk to you a bit about this. And in particular, I want to talk to you about a guy called Eli Wiesel. And there's a photo of him, which we're going to take a look at. There he is. And uh, Eli is an interesting character because, actually, he experienced what he called the silence of God, when his family in the Second World War were burned to death in a concentration camp. And he says that he felt alone in a world that was forsaken by God, and he felt forsaken by God on a personal level. And yet, actually, Eli is an interesting character because after the war, he, um, he went on to become kind of a, a founding member of the New York Human Rights um, got it down here. The New New York Human Rights Foundation, and actually in in 1986 he was awarded the Nobel Peace Prize for his contributions to human rights. Now, 
I find that interesting because a man who has suffered so much has come through the other side and contributed great deals to society in righting some wrongs that he has seen. And actually, there are a few quotes from him and his writings that I just want to read out to you because it helps set the scene for what I want to, what, what, what I want to say to you. So in one of his books, actually, after, the, after a period of time, he, he says this. He says, I have not lost faith in God. I have moments of anger and protest. And sometimes I've been closer to him for that reason. Uh, and I don't, maybe you can relate to that. Maybe you can't. Some of you will be able to, some of you won't be able to. And the second quote I want to read to you is this. It says, even in darkness, it is possible to create light. Even in darkness, it is possible to create light. Eli went on to be a founding member of the New York Human Rights Foundation. And in 1986, he was awarded the Nobel Peace Prize for his efforts. But what's interesting about Eli and those quotes, actually, he doesn't present an explanation of his suffering. He never explains the suffering. He never tries to. But what he does kind of hint at is the solution to his suffering. I just want to explore that for a moment, if that's okay with you. And the way I want to do that is using an illustration of a bus. Okay? So I want you to imagine for a moment, you're walking down the street, and you get hit by a bus. And actually, this, this moment, you've just been hit by a bus, it's broken your leg, and you're lying on the floor, and you're in excruciating agony. So just picture that for a moment, if you can. Uh, if you've experienced that, I'm just really sorry about that. But, uh, but I just realized, oh man, if someone's experienced that, that'd be terrible. Uh, but imagine that, imagine that. You, you've been hit by a bus, you've broken your leg. And I see this happen. And I come over to you, and there's two things I might say to you. And I want to say, this is the first thing that I might say to you, and then I'm going to tell you what the other thing is. All right, so you're lying there, you've broken your leg, you're in agony, and I come up to you, and I say, let me give you an explanation of your suffering. You see, the bus has driven over your femur, breaking it in two places. The displaced bone is pressing against your femoral nerve, which is sending neural messages through your lumbar plexus, up your spine, and into the pain receptors in your brain, giving you the experience of excruciating agony. Does that help? No. But suppose I said to you, I haven't got a complete explanation of your suffering, but I do have a solution for it. I have an injection of morphine here, which will take away your pain. I can then splint your leg and take you to hospital to get it fixed. Now, it's a fairly obvious answer if I then say, which one would you prefer? But the point is, actually, I don't think we're ever going to find an explanation of suffering in, in, in this lifetime. I, I don't think that's going to happen. If someone has that explanation, like they can come and share it, but still, I'm not really sure that would be like, adequate. I don't think we're going to find that um, anywhere, really. But what the point I'm trying to make is, if you're, if you're not a Christian here, or if you, if you don't know Jesus, or even if you are, but the thing that's stopping you taking that next step is the problem of suffering, which quite frankly is a problem for a lot of people. Like you're not alone if that is your problem, if, if that's what you really struggle with. What I want to say to you is, don't let 
the fact that you don't have an explanation of suffering stop you from accessing the solution? Because why would you do that? Why would you stop the fact that you have a solution in Jesus? Why would, that, why would, why would you stop not having it because you don't have an explanation accessing the solution? And just as a side note, actually, if, if you're here this morning and you are going through something and you're thinking, yeah, that's, that's great, Sam, but God doesn't, God doesn't understand what I'm going through. Well, I'm sorry, I, I think you're wrong. God does understand. Because he experienced it through Jesus on the cross. That's the other thing that happens in this passage. God knows what your suffering's like. He may not give you an explanation, but there is a solution. All right, let's move back into the passage. Verse 35 says this, it says, When some of those standing near heard this, they said, Listen, he's calling Elijah. Someone ran, filled a sponge with wine vinegar, put it on a staff and offered it to Jesus to drink. Now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to take him down, he said. And these two verses, I was looking into them, and actually, a lot of people think this is actually just an extension of the mockery of Jesus. Because what's happened is the bystanders, without realizing it, have just witnessed the darkness of judgment. They've just witnessed the sins of humanity being judged upon Jesus on the cross but unable to comprehend that, unable to actually understand what's just happened before them, they turn Jesus' words into a joke. They laugh about the return of Elijah, which at the time was understood to be uh, a lot of Jews thought that's what would happen. So that, that's, that's kind of why they would say that. But actually, in reality... They expected Elijah to return as much as they expected Jesus just to pop down from the cross. Like this isn't like, an, like a saying of in anticipation. They're not thinking, oh, here comes Elijah. No, this is just an extension of Jesus' mockery. They're saying, oh, let's make another joke out of his words. Let's twist what he's saying. It's simply an extension of Jesus' mockery a beaten and broken Jesus who's just been judged by God on the cross, forsaken by his father. And they continue the mockery by making a joke out of his words. And yet there is one final victory to be had, because verse 37 says this, it says, With a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus saw how he died, he said, surely this man was the son of God. And so we have these two massive events right at the end of this passage we're looking at this morning. And these two events get me very excited when I was preparing. I thought, wow, this is amazing. Because these two things that we just heard in those two verses, actually what that is is... um, the splitting of the temple veil implies judgment on the temple and that God, uh, God's presence is no longer to be held within the temple. It's, in a sense, the unveiling of God's majesty 
to all people. In fact, actually what's fascinating about this passage in those verses is the language that Mark uses in this moment. Because the language that Mark uses in this moment when he says the veil was torn in two, that language, the torn, is used one other time in Mark's gospel. And the other time it's used is at Jesus' baptism. When Jesus comes out of the water and the heavens are torn, that's the only other time this language is, is used in Mark's gospel. The veil is torn, the heavens are torn during Jesus' baptism. And it doesn't say in scripture, but when I was preparing this, I just got this sense that as God splits the temple curtain, I got this sense that once again, just as like at the baptism of Jesus, where he says, behold my son whom I love. I got this sense that actually again, just because of the language, he uses this language, the veil is torn. I sense that God just says, this is my son whom I love. He's done it. Mission complete. There is now no separation. And it's evidence, the end of verse 38, the centurion's statement of faith. He says, surely this man was the son of God. And the thing that struck me about that statement is actually, there's no clear indication as to why the centurion believed. Like, the Bible doesn't actually say why he all of a sudden made this statement. It doesn't make it clear. So I was thinking about this and I came to the conclusion that as he stood at the foot of the cross watching the crucifixion of Jesus and watching the events unfold around him, listening to the words of Jesus, which are so painfully uttered from his mouth. And remember that these sayings from the cross, these aren't easy things to say uh, kind of theologically. These are hard, the reason these are so hard for him to say is because it's agony to speak his ribs are broken his lungs are probably punctured to speak on the cross is agony you just wouldn't do it it's not logical you're better off just staying silent you're just causing yourself more pain so he stands at the foot of the cross and he listens to Jesus and he watches the way he conducts himself the way he forgives his executioners father forgive them for they do not know what they are doing how he speaks to the criminals alongside him today you'll be with me in paradise and I think the centurion, he stands there and he watches this. And as the veil is torn, the very thing that signified the separation between humanity and God, the centurion looks up at Jesus' dead body, knowing the way he's conducted himself on the cross, and thinks, wow, surely this was the Son of God. Having seen so many crucifixions throughout his time as centurion, I mean, what must that have been like? It must have been a nice change for him to have someone conduct themselves with manners on the cross, someone conduct themselves with a bit of grace. He stands at the foot of the cross and he sees the way Jesus conducts himself. He comes to faith. And the final point, I just want to end on this, and the band, you can come up if you want. I said already about Psalm 22, and we focused in on that a little bit, didn't we? And 
what's what's fascinating about the psalms are the change in emotion that we see from one psalm to the next because quite frankly what comes after psalm 22 is possibly one of the most famous psalms there is psalm 23 as it reads this it says the lord is my shepherd i lack nothing he makes me lie down in green pastures. He leaves me beside quiet waters. He refreshes my soul. He guides me along the right paths for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the darkest valley, I will fear no evil for you are with me. It just struck me that Psalm 22 is this devastating psalm and yet Psalm 23 is one of the most famous psalms of the Lord being our shepherd. In fact, actually, before we even get to Psalm 23, the final verse in Psalm 22 is pretty striking. The final verse in Psalm 22 reads this. It says, They will proclaim his righteousness, declaring to a people yet unborn, he has done it. That's the final verse of Psalm 22. The psalm that starts, My God, my God, why have you forsaken, ends with he has done it. So if you're here today and you're in the midst of something, you're crying out to God and your heart is saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I, I just want to say to you, hang in there. Hang in there. Because the, the last verse in Psalm 22, which King David was probably in a similar situation to you if you're going through something, is he has done it. And then the next psalm is the Lord is my shepherd. Breakthrough is coming. I think that's what we learn from this. Breakthrough is coming. The cross isn't the end. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It doesn't end there. The, res- the resurrection is coming. Psalm 22 ends with, he has done it. They will proclaim his righteousness.